If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're going thematic. We're talking about thematically informed game design. What does that mean? How do you inform your design with theme? Well, I'm excited because we're talking to a master of doing it, at least in my opinion, Mr. Johnny Pack. Johnny, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's a real honor to be here. Yeah, man, super excited to talk to you. You've designed just several uh, amazing games that have come out over the last few years. And, uh, you know, Merchant's Cove and Hangman, and you have a ton of Wild West games. Uh, Coloma, Sierra West, like you've got a bunch of Wild West games. I'm really excited to chat about, like, how do you bring out the Wild West and, and why do you love the Wild West? We'll get to that in a minute. But, uh, yeah, just excited to have you here on the show. You show up a lot on social media, and you, you know a lot of people are playing your games. I see people post pictures of your games and talk about different things. You've had some Kickstarter uh, campaigns for your games do really well in recent years. So yeah, man, I'm just excited to to chat about your ideas, your opinions as far as like theme. It seems like theme episodes get a lot of downloads. It, this seems to be something that a lot of people are interested in, and how do you bring out a theme, and how do you integrate it into the mechanisms of the game, and all that good stuff. So yeah, I think this is going to be a really helpful episode for a lot of people, and especially because based on the games you've designed, kind of obvious you know what you're doing. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Oh, well, um, yeah, I've been uh, kind of in the industry since around 2012 when I had my first game and kind of stumbled a lot for the first almost decade of, of trying to break in as a game designer. And then um, somewhere around 2018, I had some luck getting some more stuff signed and in development. And then it kind of came out some games just came out all at once in 2019 and that little splash i think um was kind of the big the big break in for me where i was kind of excited i had a game come out a couple games come out at essen that year and one at gen con and um a little bit of notoriety and then had some successful kickstarters and i started also working as a full-time designer and game developer so i kind of wear both hats um a lot of times when i work on my own games uh, that i signed with a publisher i also come on board as the developer or one of the developers to uh, get the game all the way to the finish line. And then with uh, a lot of other games, I will just exclusively be the developer, um, kind of a hired gun to come in and finish games and kind of work um, between the designer and the publisher and try to meet all the criteria and get that thing where it's, you know, ready to press print and get out to the, uh, out to the world. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of my main gig. I've been doing this full time now for over two years. So just trying to get by. Very cool. All right. So I know a lot of people who listen to the show are kind of in that place where I think you were for a while where you're just kind of floating along and you're trying to break in. You're trying to maybe get some games signed, trying to figure this whole industry thing out, trying to you know become a full fledged designer. How did you do it? How, like, tell me, like, give, give those people some encouragement. Give those people maybe just a, a quick word of advice on, on how to keep going, how to keep grinding, keep working, you know, because eventually, hopefully it'll pay off. What would you tell them? Well, uh, yeah, that's great. Um, so with me, I had really kind of a, a bumpy ride and a little bit bumpier than, than some designers or aspiring designers. And so there's a lot of things I would say what not to do or just Murphy's Law was very strange in my case. Um, so my, my first, very first time I tried to design a game, it got signed within six months and I was very starry-eyed and just signed the contract as it was and asked very few questions because people's uh, conventional wisdom is, oh my gosh, if you if somebody hands you a contract and you're a new designer, just take it no matter what. But um, that game was kind of a big disaster and didn't do well for the company or for me or anybody else. And actually, I kind of felt 
like I'd rather have not had a game signed at that point or to, it published and would have preferred to pitch myself uh, from a clean slate. And so um, before the show started, you kind of asked why I don't use my last name all the time with stuff as Canton, which, you know, which is fine. It's no secret, but I go by Johnny Peck, my middle name to kind of rebrand myself a little bit from where my first design did have my uh, full name on it. I kind of came back, used my musician, Johnny Peck handle. And uh, then I decided to, because I was so bumpy, I decided to self-publish a game on this Kickstarter thing, which was kind of new at the time, right before Exploding Kittens exploded Kickstarter for everybody. Um, and I did the game um, Hangtown. So that was just kind of a little self-published, local history-based Euro uh, game, and very would call like a vanity run. I did 1,200 copies and sold them out of the back of my car and kind of learned the ropes on just how to produce a game from the back end and lots of questions I didn't even know I needed to ask and learn that stuff. And that took... A couple of years of my time and it was not an easy process but i did learn a lot and after that i decided i don't want to be a publisher because that's just way too much work per game and uh, i would have to hire more people to really do it efficiently and with more and more demands like you know being able to have uh, european friendly shipping all these other stuff it just needed to scale up beyond what my capacity was as a person. And so I switched gears yet again and decided to make a nice little website and build out a catalog of games all at once instead of just working on one. And I had some kind of family weight stuff, middleweight stuff, whatever it was, and kind of raised this crop of games up together and uh, sent myself to as many trade shows as I could drive to or fly to um and try to go to speed dating events and things like that and have sell sheets have a business card have a website and just have different offerings so if i were in a pitching situation um i could ask the publisher what weight or style of game are you looking for and maybe i have something among these things that i've been working on that would fit your what you do and uh one of your episodes here uh you had um my friend now uh daniel peterson from uh who is at uh, Mayday games for a long time. He was their acquisitions guy. And I got to meet him and kind of see a little bit of the back end on how, when he's sent out to a unpublished protospiel, how, what he's looking for and the questions they ask and kind of trying to see it from that side a little bit and meet the publisher more than halfway um, with their stuff. You know, and it was kind of in that process that I was able to make some uh, good connections through going to say like Gamma or BGG Con, speed dating and just kind of get my stuff out there and follow up with different publishers and even ask, well, if you don't like this stuff, what are you looking for? Maybe, maybe in six months I'll have something like that. And we can just keep, keep the connections going. And um, then once I had a few things kind of in the pipeline, I think other publishers felt more confident in working with me like, Oh, this guy's he's, you know, he's got a game with board and dice. Those guys are great. They got some really cool titles. And so it means there's kind of that social validation um, I think came along with it. And so once you have something out there, it's kind of good that you can leverage that to uh, have some credibility to pitch other stuff and not be, you know, completely uh, unknown. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a ton of great advice in that right there. And I think that's worth, if you're listening to this and you're, you're in that place of trying to figure it out, trying to break in the industry, just hit rewind and go back a little bit and just listen to all that again, because I think it's valuable what Johnny's saying right there. But I want to focus in on one thing in particular, and it's, you know, everybody wants to be, quote unquote, an overnight success. Uh, we all, if, if you know anything about true success, it's not real. It takes 10 years to be an overnight success a lot of times. But I think, I think the people that are overnight success, that really do come out the gate and their first thing blows up, whether it's a, a song or a game or a book or whatever, it can often be a curse because there's so much value that comes from having to work, from having to grind, from having to do a whole bunch of things and, and maybe failing and being rejected and, and things not being quite what they need to be. There's so much value because you learn so much along the way. And I love that you were like, you know what? I'm just going to do it myself. I'm going to figure out this publishing thing. I'm going to learn the back end. Because that, no doubt, taught you a million little things about design and about what it's going to be like in the future to work with a publisher and have to think through components and costs and shipping. Like you learn so much just in that process. And I, I can't imagine how just invaluable that that learning experience was. And so, yeah, that's that's excellent. And not that I'm saying, hey, everybody go do your own Kickstarter, you know, print your own copy. Not necessarily, but I, I do think you learn a tremendous amount along the way. And so being an overnight success, not necessarily the best thing in the world. It, in my opinion, probably a little bit better to have to grind, to have to work and, and figure things out. Uh, and so it, it seems like you've you've been doing that. And I love just rebranding. Like, hey, I'm going to change my name just a little bit and uh, I'm going to rebrand this whole thing. Like, feel free, you know, go for it. 
<laughs> yeah, like, it's, you know, like, for instance, I'll give you a little anecdote. Like, um, my game, A Fistful of Meeples, used to be called um, Meeples on Main. I think I got rejected over 30 times by publishers I really admired by the time a publisher did sign that game. And the only reason they signed it is they liked the game, but they they had a production spot between projects and it fit the footprint of what they needed to do. And they just needed something quick and it was nearly done. And they said, Oh, cool. This is, this is easy. And so it was one of those things where that, that game lost contests. I entered it in two or three contests like cardboard Edison. It lost, uh, it lost a couple other ones. It got sent back many times from some of my favorite German publishers and American publishers, lots, lots of rejections. And uh, then finally it got signed and it's sold many print runs now of, you know, it's a small family size game, but it's sold many print runs. And so it's one of those things where I've felt, um, you know, like that imposter syndrome thing where it's just like, am I, why am I doing this? Is this game even good? Or am I pushing it too far? And then when it actually got out there and I actually saw like Rado being really excited about playing it and getting good reviews and all these localization partners of the companies going, Oh my gosh, we want to bring that to Spain, all this. And it sold 700 copies on the first day it came out. It's like, that is such a contrast from all the, mm, yeah, maybe no, uh, you know, come back in a year, uh, sort of response I got, <laughs> um, out there in the pitching world. So, I think, you know, take rejection to heart that, you know, challenge yourself and look at your game and ask, is it good enough? But also know that maybe if the right publisher sees the spark in it and it just gets out there in the world, it might do better than what other people thought it might. <laughs> so, um, so there's, there's like a weird contrast between your own doubt and also your own optimism. And, uh, I'm not sure exactly where to, to land on that between, you know, hubris and, you know, imposter syndrome. Right. Well, I think you have to be somewhere in the middle because if you have too much imposter syndrome, you're not going to get off the couch. Like you're not going to do anything. And if you have too much hubris, you're going to be so insufferable that people don't want to work with you unless you're just God's gift to the, the thing. Right. And so it's somewhere in the middle because you want to be humble enough to listen to criticism and to hear playtesters and what they're saying. And that way you, you don't just be like, no, this is the greatest game since Monopoly. Um, but you, you know, you have to have a certain amount of confidence to even put that game on a table in front of other people. And so, yeah, it's all about finding that balance. But as you were talking about, you know, just kind of pitching the games and doing things, it reminded me of a video I saw a while back from Brian Cranston, and he was doing some kind of panel at a convention or something. He's the guy that played Walt in Breaking Bad. So just a phenomenal actor, and, and he's done, done a lot of great roles over the years. And he talked about how the, the big switch that happened in him when he was early on in acting, and he was still trying to figure it out, and he was in Hollywood, and, and you know, getting rejected, and all these different things, and wanting to quit. He had to totally re kind of redo his brain about what he was doing because he kept going to these um, auditions and reading and, you know, the director's like, ah, or the casting person's like, ah, it's not really what we're looking for or whatever. And that, that hurts. You know, that's tough. It's kind of like when you sit down at a pitch or a speed dating and the person across from you is like, ah, you know, it's fine. It's not what we're looking for. And that, that, that hurts. There's a certain amount of pain that comes from any rejection, especially if you have your hopes up or someone you would really want to work with, whatever. And so Brian Cranston was talking about how what he had to realize is that he is an actor and it's not his job as an actor to get a job. It's his job to do the job, to go and act. And if, if that turns into roles and people paying him lots of money for things, cause, cause he's what they're looking for. Great. And if not, that's okay too. Cause he's not acting to get a job. He's acting to do a job. And I was like, that's a really interesting thing. If you kind of think that same mentality, like I am a game designer, period. Whether I have games on shelves or not, it doesn't matter. I am a game designer. And it's not my job to go and, and, and sit in front of publishers and get picked up, you know, get published, get signed, you know, contract signed. That's that's not my job. My job is to design games. And as long as I'm doing that, then I'm fulfilling the thing. I'm, I'm here to do a job, which is design games. I'm not here to get a job or get games published. And and that's just a different mindset. And maybe it's a little bit semantics. Maybe it's a little bit, you know, six in one hand, half dozen in the other. But I think that mind shift, you know, re- setting your brain to, to understand I am this thing, no matter what happens, whether I get success or failure, rejected or picked up either way, I am still the thing because this is what I'm doing. It's not about, you know, getting picked up or whatever. So I think that that can be super helpful for anybody who's just struggling right now. You're here to do a job, not get a job. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think there's a lot of integrity in that and that kind of, you know, the difference between that is what do you what do you do in your off time? And if you're there to design games, you're going to practice designing games, you're going to rethink your mechanics, you're going to study other games and listen to this podcast, you're going to do stuff like that. 
And if you're there just to sell games, then you're going to be looking at how shiny can I make my sell sheet? Should I learn video editing so I can make a hot, you know, sizzle pitch video? And, you know, how do I come across as a person? Do I show up in a three piece suit when I go to a or do I show up in, you know, Crocs? <laughs> I have pitched games in Crocs, by the way. Um, you know, so it's like, you know, do you, are you practicing getting your game okay and then getting really good at pitching it, which is okay? Or do you just, you know, practice your craft until it's hopefully just self-evidently good and it sells itself right and um I'm, I'm sure there's some split in the middle i mean you have to be you know at least polite and sociable and show up but um you know i definitely side on the side of you know practice your craft you know this comes partially from being a musician too it's like you know do you want to just you know practice jumping around in front of the mirror or do you want to actually like you know learn to play the guitar really well yeah 100 i mean how many people look a certain way but then you hear them or you you read what they've written you play the game that they design you're like oh this is not what I thought. <laughs> like, like this is all show, you know, and you got to be careful. I think there is a place in the middle where you want to make sure you smell nice and you want to make sure you have good breath when you sit down and you know, all that kind of stuff. Like that's important. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's not about that. It's about, is this game fun? Are you creating the experience for the target audience that you're after? And does the publisher see that? And, and that's really what it's about. And you, you mentioned mechanisms and let's actually, let's just dive right in. Let's, let's get to the topic at hand. Uh, let's talk about thematically informed game design. What does that mean? First of all, let's get a good working definition and then dive in. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, you know, if you kind of float around the internet, you're going to see a lot of these articles or um, threads on Facebook and things where people debate uh, or even take polls, you know, what's more important theme or mechanisms. And you get people taking some sort of stand on it. Um, and then you, know, you got kind of this third answer, which is, oh, it's experience. You know, it's not about theme or mechanisms, it's about the experience. I and mean, that's a very vague thing to say because every game has an experience. But um, what I try to think about there is, you know, ultimately I think we're, we're making games. And so I do side on the fact that uh, I will often come up with a mechanism or series of mechanisms that work together in, I think, a novel way that kind of mashes up in kind of a, a cool way. And I go, okay, that seems inspired and creates, uh, say, the player experience I'm kind of looking for as far as interaction points or puzzle or whatever it may be. And before going really any further, to try to find a theme that uh, illustrates what what's going on there, kind of a metaphor for what that is, to help guide that core experience, but also uh, kind of open up the doors for what else should be in the game from that point because if we say built it out like the game is done but it has no theme it's going to be very hard to find the kind of like cinderella's shoe of a of a theme that'll just fit perfectly in there whereas if you get it to a point where here's a cool core mechanism here's a neat thematic uh, metaphor for why we're doing that what other baggage does this theme bring on with it for better or worse and can we leverage that for the subsystems of the game so uh like a quick little example might be we'll, we'll use uh, Fistful of Meeples again. It's basically I was uh, I was a bartender at the time, having three jobs, and night job was one of them, being a bartender. And I found an old um, copy of uh, Mancala, and I would put it out in the on the bar. And as people were having their drinks and getting kind of drunk, they would uh, I would play Mancala with them because they could handle that. And I noticed that people really loved just picking up the rocks and putting them in a circle and doing the Mancala thing. And I was kind of, you know, got philosophical and thought, gosh, it's been around for so many thousands of years, such a neat human ritualistic experience to play this game like this. And it's just intrinsically fun. It's the right type of fiddly. <laughs> um, and I thought about, well, you know, what about some of these modern games that have leveraged it? We think about like Five Tribes or Gold West, some of these other ones where they, you know, kind of get that pick up some stuff and drop pieces off like Breadcrumb Trailer, even Istanbul. And going like there's something intrinsically cool about this and so then i was thinking about i was in a small western town which i you know grew up in and how there's the long main street where there was horses running down the middle of it and shootouts and things like that and bank robberies whatever else and then there was the rows of uh buildings on the sides you know with your classic marquees and all that sort of thing and i was thinking it was like well what if we took a Mancala board and superimpose it onto like a Western town where the big margin in the middle is just the street. And then you've got all these little pits on the side, which would effectively be um, the buildings. And then think of, you know, kind of like five tribes or something where each little rock, instead of being a rock, would be a little meeple of a different color and red robbers and, you know, gold miners and things like that. And, you know, you just pick up a handful of little meeples and drop them off in a circle around a Western town that was the idea. And so I was like, okay, cool. Well, where's this going to go? And so you kind of start thinking about 
here's the thematically informed part is like, all right, here's a mechanism, which is basically my column meets worker placement in the old West. And what do you expect in the old West? You think, well, there should be a, a saloon. There's gotta be a saloon. Well, what will saloon do? Okay. Uh, there's gotta be robbers. Okay. Well, there's gotta be a sheriff and a deputy. What are they going to do? And so you started kind of thinking about, well, if there's robbers and then there's deputies, I bet the deputies who bust the robbers and if they get busted, well, where do they go? Maybe to a jail. Okay. And then after jail, wouldn't there be a jailbreak? And you go, okay. And then what sort of Western theme is without like a shootout or something like that. And you go, okay, well at the either end of the town is where you kind of imagine the guys standing off and, you know, taking their steps and, you know, pulling out their pistols. And so it's like, all right, well at either end of this Mancala board where there's usually the large pit, what if there was a, a spot where you could put a meeple to initiate a shootout? And when they had a rival on the other side, they would do something to resolve that. And, and thinking like, okay, well, how do you want to resolve this? Is should it be a Euro game where it's just, you know, the better one always wins. It's like, well, that's not really true of, you know, gunfights if you've seen enough movies and things like that. And so I was like, well, it needs a random mechanism. It needs, it needs probably to roll a die and have something like that work out. So it's like, okay, so the better shot is going to have a better odds, but the, there's still going to be a die involved between these, these things to resolve that little shootout. So that's again, where, you know, I think uh, combat mechanisms in games, uh, if it's really, really deterministic, like you know, chess or something like that, you just take the piece. That's fine. But sometimes uh, having a combat mechanism with a little bit of uh, input or output randomness will actually be more evocative and can still be in a Euro game like, you know, Eclipse or something like that um, utilizes that very well to create those moments that fits the, the setting. Yeah, absolutely. And oh man, just a lot of cool things right there. All right. So I want to definitely dive more into Euro games and, and putting theme there because that's a whole topic unto itself. But before we get into that, what is it about the Wild West that keeps pulling you back? You, you've designed several games uh, with that Wild West theme. What is it? Are you are you just in love with theme? Is it just something that calls out to you? Like, Give me kind of the behind the scenes. Why do you keep coming back to that theme? So uh, the town I grew up in is is a historic gold rush town in California. Um, so it's kind of founded around the 1849 gold rush uh, right outside of Coloma, which is one of the games that I designed. And then uh, Hangtown is the name of the town proper that I live in. And so um, looking at uh, you know, a lot of the European themes and stuff like that, I kind of felt weird just going in there and trying to uh, make a theme about something I didn't know as much about and, or I could do a bunch of research about, but I was like, well, you know, this is right under my nose and I've kind of grown up with it. And I just know the tropes and the language and the, the stuff that goes with it. And why not leverage that? Um, and even further, if I wanted to uh, research it, there's a lot of locally published books about the local history and stuff like that, that would be hard to find even online under PDF or anywhere else like that. Or you could just go down to the, you know, the local, uh, history place that's like a tourist center and you know some some old board person sitting there behind you know the desk you know waiting for somebody to come in and look at the artifacts you pop in there and say hey you know tell me about the history of this building or these other ones or when the fires were all this stuff that happened um so it just became like an kind of an easy thing to work with and so hangtown eventually turned into what was the game coloma they're mechanically related and hangtown was my little uh, vanity run small version of it had a lot of historic photos and it was very like rooted in the actual history of the town um, kind of geared so the locals would think it's a cool collection piece um, where Coloma's got the Micho's artwork and it's big it's like you know their big splashy deluxe hero game sort of thing and so we, we tamed down a lot of the you know direct ties to the uh, local history but still kept the western theme and uh, for instance, there's no saguaro cactuses in this area. And when the artist drew some saguaro cactuses in there, even though it's, you know, oh, yeah, Western, you know, there's going to be cactuses, of course. I was like, actually, there aren't going to be taken cactuses as much as I love cactuses. Um, so there's, you know, we kind of made sure that it was like that. We uh, featured a character that you could play, which is of the uh, Maidu Indian uh, with their you know proper headdress and all that. Didn't want to just use like, you know, a stereotype like that and actually go in there and find out what they wore. And so when you play that character, it's you know, the drawing is accurate enough to what, what they would wear at the time and of the right tribe and that sort of thing that was around Coloma of that period. So, um, so things like that. And Sierra West was, uh, designed actually after 
Coloma, but came out before it. So it's just a matter of how the production queue was. And that game was originally um, about the Donner Party, which is, uh, you know, kind of this tragic story of a bunch of pioneers coming over the uh, pass in the Sierras in 1847, um, right before the gold rush, and got stuck in this big, nasty blizzard. And they were up there so long that they ended up eating their horses, their saddlebags, and eventually they're dead. Um, so it's kind of like this very dark, um, tragic story. And a few survivors made it through to the other side once, once the winter passed. Um, so originally Sarah West actually had going up a snowy mountain and it was getting stuck and there were snowballs and meeples were getting frozen. And if, you know, you had to run out of food in the game, you'd have to, you know, eat some of the frozen meeples. Um, the publisher didn't think that would go over so well in Europe. So they asked me, <laughs> can't imagine <laughs> so why. <laughs> yeah. So I said, can you change it to more like, you know, just typical, you know, um, you know, Wild West stuff. I said, okay, you know, some some bandits, some shootouts, some uh, gold mining, and that sort of thing. And so I switched the theme up a little bit. Um, and one of the one of the modules in that game is Apple Hill, and there's an agricultural area that's um, in California near me, which is called Apple Hill, and uh, it is about that. So it was, it was kind of like about the fall harvest, and it was a little atypical for a Western theme, but I did feel like it was rooted in the the history here. So you kind of got the, the the peaceful harvest time. You got the bandits coming down the mountain. You've got the gold rush version of that and then there's one that was a little bit inspired by uh, the <laughs> deliverance even though it's a little anachronistic but the idea of going down uh, a river in canoes and uh, encountering you know fish and gold and all that sort of thing and banjos so that was kind of the the fourth module that went into that game gotcha i love your attention to detail and, and going the extra mile and going to these places and actually talking to people who know about the history and, and looking at the artifacts that's really cool and i guess it goes back to the old saying of write what you know or in this case design what you know, and you, all you had to do is walk out your door and there you were in those places. And so, you know, it's why I designed football games for a long time. It's, it's what I knew. It's the world that I came out of. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of, a lot of value in that. And, and I love that they're not soulless euros. I see that acronym, the ASE on BGG and different places around, around the web, another soulless Euro where it's just some mechanisms with some art thrown on top. And, and it's really just, the gameplay, it has nothing to do with whatever theme that they've pasted on. And I love that that's not what you're doing. And so how, how do you avoid that though? You are designing Euro games. It would be a little bit easy to just do that and throw it out, out on the market. And so tell me about your process. I, I believe you know, we were talking before the show about the tug of war, how a lot of people put mechanism and theme, you know, at odds It's kind of this back and forth where you don't see it that way. You see it more as a harmony. So how do you, how do you create that harmony, harmony between theme and mechanism in a Euro game. Tell me about your process. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I'm also a musician and songwriter. So one very similar argument and metaphor that you'll hear is melody versus chord progression sort of things that the chords are the melody that comes first. And anybody that's a songwriter will often say if they're songwriting on guitar, they'll probably start strumming some chords that sound nice together. And they'll probably start to hum a melody and kind of see where the melody lands on those chords underneath it until they kind of, um, we say kind of like negotiate the differences between those until you come with a nice compromise of, of what sounds good between the, whereas if they strictly wrote what was a very good melody and then tried to harmonize it afterwards, finding a chord to go under each important uh, note, that's one way of doing it, but it actually might be a little harder to do that than try to fishing around. And um, piano composers will oftentimes, you know, start playing chords in their left hand and start playing melodies in the right hand until again, they find things that, work. They'll use theory and they understand what things go together, but to kind of hear it flow together, um, it really is a nice thing when you can kind of make it strong on both, both ends. Um, in contrast, you get some, you know, rock guitars and things like that. They'll just come up with like a really cool riff and they just want to play that over and over. And they hope that somebody can come in with melodic sensibilities and come up with a nice melody that fits over this riff. And that works too. We might, um, you know, I'm not sure, exactly sure how to say like, you know, Led Zeppelin would come up with their songs, but those riffs are very, very strong. You can imagine that, you know, playing those riffs and Robert Plant would come in and, you know, kind of scream over it until it just sounded awesome. That's also valid. And that, also drugs. There's also drugs involved. <laughs> also drugs. <laughs> yes. So, um, so with, with the mechanisms and theme, it's kind of like trying to negotiate the theme and the mechanism pretty early in the process until you find something that gels and opens up uh, design possibilities. So it's like, if I've got this mechanism, I got this theme and it's like, well, if that's it, I don't know what else we could even do with this thing. Cause it's just 
you know, the doors close. But if you put it together and you see like, oh my gosh, this opens up so many possibilities for, I don't know, expansions, modules, ideas, uh, broadens the scope. That's kind of a good thing. Um, and we could take like uh, kind of a, some tropes, let's say like, and it's like a worker placement game where you've got, uh, okay, so you're going to get more meeples over the course of the game. And if you keep getting lots of meeples, we need to like, you know, kind of tax you and slow you down a little bit. Otherwise this thing's going to spike too quick. So let's make you feed your meeples periodically. Okay, cool. That's so, you know, if you get lots of meeples and you have to feed meeples, so therefore you need to bring the food production up with the meeple production and, you know, kind of bring those in parallel. That's, that's a clearly a mechanism that, was probably designed because of a you know mechanical problem where it's like it's fun to have more workers but things get out of control and whoever gets more workers first will probably win the game and so having this this other factor feeding your your people uh fits in and that makes sense because you more people more production more food and so the metaphor totally makes sense um when i was working on some of the western games for instance like let's say coloma it's it didn't really, to me, make sense to have a feed your people sort of a mechanic in there because it's kind of like I could have had like, you know, you got to bring them down every now and then and get some vittles. I could have done that. Um, but instead, I decided to think like, well, what if we had like this kind of like feed your people's thing that happens periodically to kind of um, slow down the, you know, how many meeples you're getting and what you're doing with them. And that's when I took the metaphor of the shootout in those games. So what was basically happening is there's an AI band of bandits that are going to come in and they're going to invade the town and stop everybody from just, you know, mining gold and mining their own business. And it was kind of like a um, game theory problem or what, what would be the tragedy of the commons. And so you want to apply the, ultimately you don't want to put, you know, dudes into the shootout because you'd rather be using them for your own purposes. But if nobody puts any dudes into the shootout, then the sound gets taken over by bandits and everybody loses a little bit. So it's, there's this interplayer dynamic of this, but there's also this management thing where, okay, by the end of the round, I'm going to have to put a certain amount of dudes into the shootout in order to try to survive this sort of thing. And so rolling with that metaphor, then you get the outcome of that thing. It's like, well, what happens if you lose in the shootout? It's like, well, okay, well, let's put some meeples in the little graveyard, kind of inspired by uh, the game Village or something like that, where it's like, okay, a little meeple graveyard. And so you definitely don't want to have fewer workers in the worker placement type game. So you want them to be in there, but you also want to get them to survive and come out. So I kind of took the feed your, feed your people sort of mechanism and reskinned it as a shootout with bandits and then embraced what that would bring with it, which is a little bit of risk, a little bit of, you know, life or death sort of stuff. Um, and framing that back into the, the Western theme and, and mechanically it works in a very similar way where it's, you know, you take, every five turns, there's going to be a shootout sort of thing where in Sulkin or Agricola or something like that, periodically there's these feed your meeples um, periods. Yeah, and I like how it makes sense, right? Because I've, I've played games in the past, especially Euro type games, and somebody tells you a rule or they tell you part of the gameplay. And the first question I ask is, why? Like, why? Why is that? Like, what is it? Why? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it, it doesn't really help. With the gameplay, it's like, oh, okay, from a design standpoint, kind of like with feature people, it's like, okay, the designer realized that it's easy for someone to do this and get way out ahead, and then they're, you can't catch them, and so they put in this little mechanism that keeps the scores tighter or whatever. Okay, I understand that. But if you can come up with a really good reason, especially a thematic reason for that rule to exist or that part of the game to exist, one, it makes it a lot easier to remember because it's not just some random rule because, but two, it just makes the game more interesting because there are more thematic things happening like in your game with the shootout or you know whatever and so i think that's a, that's a really cool way to do it and something to think about and maybe you have some advice on this so if i'm a designer and i do run into a scenario where oh, okay if a player does x then it's going to create y problem so how how can i come up with a thematic uh fix a thematic solution what does that look like do you have like a, a little process you go through or, or something like do you have something you start thinking about or maybe it's part of your research you're trying to find different interesting nuances about the theme or something like that. What, what do you do if you run into that situation where you need this rule because the game, you know, it doesn't work very well or it has a, a problem without this rule, but it's not super thematic. How do you make it thematic? Well, um, there's kind of a two-step process. I mean, first, I, um, I don't like exceptions in games. And so I know some designers, they won't admit it out loud. I think they fetishize exceptions because it kind of sounds smart. It's like, whoa, if and then, then you have to do this other thing. And there actually is a special rule for it, which I thought of. Um, I don't really like that in games. So I like it if there isn't an exception. So if I 
first come across say, a problem like that, my first thing to do would be to try to dissolve the problem instead of solve the problem with, you know, band-aid mechanic and make it go well together. But if it was something I, I embraced and it's like, you know what, this, this is a necessary evil. It's going to be in the game. Let's find some uh, thematic way of, of justifying it. Um, we can do that. So, uh, you know, I'll reference my own work alone, shameless here, but let's look at um, with a fistful of meeples. There's a point where there's kind of like a, there's a lot of meeples on the board at a certain point and they kind of pool up a little bit too much. And at first I had a hard rule where it's like each building can only hold four meeples. And uh, why? I mean, you could ask that question. Why? You know, this is a big building and why only four meeples? Fire Marshal. The Fire Marshal has determined that in the Old West, yes. Yeah, fire Marshal, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So, yeah, so Fire Marshal comes in and says, no, no go. It's like, well, that doesn't really make sense. But what if they aggregate and they just pool up too much in a given area? And they go like, well, uh, should there just be intrinsic reason for a player to take said meeples and go crazy and go around them on board? Yes, that might resolve it sometimes, but what if that's not enough? And so, uh, when that problem existed in the game. And then the artist, Micho, drew this great little cover, if you've seen it, with you know, the meeples on the street, you know, the doing a little sh- shootout. And up on um, one of the buildings, there's like a, a dancing girl up there, you know, like a, a mistress looking down at, this, at the street. And I was like, I told the publisher, I was like, how can, you know, we need to have like a madam in this game if it's she's on the cover. It's just too fun. You know, it's like, you know, this special, you know, meeple. So what, what could she do? And so, um, so we kind of like was like, okay, well, there's a saloon in the game, and that's this little corner of the board. And what the madam uh, meeple could do is go around and uh, entice meeples from a spot to go back to the saloon, and then you get some points for that. So basically, the mechanism is if there's a place that's populated with a bunch of meeples, you could put the madam there, and then the madam and all those meeples will return back to the saloon, and that's kind of this little other spot where they go and so it then they can be redeployed from that area so it was kind of a thematic way of just saying well what are these guys doing if they're all just pooling up here well they're going to go to the saloon and have some fun and then it's like well now that they're in the saloon they can be reallocated from there more freely to the other spots on the board so um so that was kind of a thematic uh whimsical way to approach that and of course you know there's some stereotyping in there or whatever else but you know it's the wild west and it's kind of fun and there's lots of funny little jokes that people make when they play that part of the game thematic solution. And I think that's that's really part of the, the bigger conversation here is how do you solve problems? Is it creating exceptions and rules and other little mechanism type things? Or are you thinking through thematically, how should this problem be solved and then leaning into that direction? Not that it's perfect, not that, that it's always going to solve every problem, but that, that's kind of your, your go-to. Like, okay, how can we come up with a thematic reason for this to exist or a reason for it to work this way or, or, or way around whatever issue has come up. Now, one thing you you mentioned a bit ago was metaphor and how different parts of the theme can come out through metaphor, through playing of the game. So tell me a little bit more about that. What does that mean exactly? And how do you do it? Um, Yeah. So what, I mean, the simplest way is, is, um, you know, some people say, Oh, I I really like theme and they're thinking, you know, big splashy artwork, narrative flavor text, all this sorts of stuff, and maybe choose your own adventure. And, you know, that's, I mean, that's, that's on like an extreme theme theme driven level. And, you know, I don't claim to be that kind of designer, but a simple metaphor might be that if you were to uh, just look at like kind of that Don Norman style of signifiers and usability and affordances and stuff, you'd look at something like if I put a big board on the table and there was some little boat meeples and there's a big blue area on that board, uh, I could almost guarantee that nobody's going to take the little motorboat and drive it onto dry land and start skirting around where the cars are because they're just going to go boats going water. It's just kind of a logic to it. And it's very almost universal, right? You know, (laughs) I don't think there'd be a culture in this world that would, you know, really think outside of that. And if the boat did go on the land, it would probably be some sort of exception, like, Oh, it's being slowly carried or on a back of a truck or something. And so, um, if we lean into things like that and go, here's, here's a thematic way to say that this unit can only go into this area because boats stay in water and that might make total sense and so using a metaphor like that you you just can let the kind of heuristics of the player drive what's actually happening in the game and uh you kind of find the right tool for the job and if there's there's kind of a mismatch or it's too arbitrary then you know say this unit can't go into you know 
uh, green areas. Why? What's a green area? What is this unit? Well, it's just it's a rule. It makes sense. It's broken if you don't. It's like, well, that's that's a you problem, not a me problem as the player. I want I want to know why this happens. And so many things are are kind of usual like that. You put a meeple and work placement game to, next to the woods, and you come back with a wood resource, and you go neat. <laughs> you put a guy into the rock quarry, he comes back with a rock, uh, stone. Uh, people dismiss that because it's it's like the air we breathe. It's just too, it makes so much sense that they go, oh, that's not thematic. It's like, yes, it is. That's actually is very, very thematic. And, um, and I might contrast and push back a little bit. Like, for instance, I think Rado really gets sometimes when I'm going for a thematic element when he's reviewing my games. And I, I'm always happy that he vocalizes those things. But I've seen some other reviewers look at the same game and say that it is, you know, just another Solus Hero or something else like that. And they're contrasting opinion. And one might be uh, the game I did uh, Lions of Lydia. So the idea of the game was basically it's a little worker placement engine builder, but what happens is in the beginning, you're just bartering uh, goods, olive oil and, and livestock and grains and things like this, and there's no money because money didn't exist. And so then uh, the Lydians come around and they invent the first minted coins in the kingdom of Lydia, and they start to trickle into the cir circulation, and the neat thing about the money is, well, it's wild. Uh, everybody always needs coins because you can trade coins for anything. I don't need to trade with you in olive oil for cattle if I don't need cattle. And so that changes the economy of the game about halfway through as coins start to trickle in, and coins are the way that you really invest into the, let's say, Seven Wonders like purple buildings that get you the big points at the end of the game. So you really can't get a good score unless you transition from your barter engine into a coin engine and then try to um, kind of, you know, rabbit points um, through that. And so that transition was was really a big inspiration for the game. It was it was I had a loose idea of a mechanism and I was looking through a book, which was the origins of everyday things. And it started talking about how the Lydians came up with coins. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's such a cool metaphor and i brought that in and when rado is playing that in his, his review he brought that out he's like oh this is so thematic how this comes out and this transition feels so different as you the first end of the game feels so different than the coin heavy end of the game and i'm like yay i got that but i had other reviewers look at the game and said there's zero theme here this is a basically an abstract it's just a worker placement you're just pushing cubes around and then you get coins and who cares and they're really, really dismissive of it. And I even had one reviewer had like a little star rating system where they gave it a zero points for theme because they thought it was purely abstract. And it's like, that doesn't make sense. Like chess is chess has theme even like we go back to maybe the game. I don't know. Go or Othello is purely abstract. Chess has a little bit of theme. Alliance of Lydia has a lot more theme than that. And so I felt like out of a four star theme rating, at least give it a one. Come on. Like there is a theme here. There is artwork on this. It's not just colors and numbers and pieces and just called units and things. There's something going on. And, and then if you can see that metaphor further and how it actually drives why you're doing what you're doing in the game as a means to your goal, what your kingdom is trying to accomplish in this case and why you're going to be better off and be the winner in the end. Um, if you can see that, great. And I feel like I've accomplished my my goal of creating a thematically informed Euro game. But that's not going to be enough for all audiences. And I totally understand that. But that's at least as far as I think it's met the usability criteria where it's really taken um, something that could have just been abstract cube pushing very, very arbitrary and made it a lot less arbitrary. And it also opened up why, as a designer, does the game shift midway through to coins? Otherwise, you say the first half of the game is cubes and the second half of the game is uh, coin discs. Why? Well, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, really. In the light of this thematic shift, it does. Yeah, I love how historical that is. You know, like, can you imagine being around, being alive in that point in history when you were crossing over from the old school way of, of trading stuff for other stuff? to now there is a currency, there's a, a, a thing, a piece of metal that has some kind of value. And why does it have value? Well, because we say it does and we all consent and agree that it does. You know, what I mean? Can you imagine like the shift? Like, again, something we take so much for granted now because it's normal to us. Well, in that moment in, moment in history, that was as foreign as aliens coming from outer space. Like, and so to have a game that has that shift and you're kind of embodying these, these peoples and they were just trying to figure it out, right? And so, yeah, you lose if you don't have any coins because, well, that's kind of what was going on historically. Like if you didn't understand how the economy was changing, then other people were going, who did figure it out, they were going to win, quote unquote. They were going to win economy, win 
you know, the, the different things that were going on at that time. And so that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, that, you know, it's not like the most thematic thing in the entire world, but it obviously has theme and it's based on true history. So that's yeah, a cool way to do it. And like you're saying, sometimes people just don't get it. And I think that's always the, the danger of dealing a little bit more in metaphor, a little bit more in the kind of nuanced, less obvious in your face uh, kind of stuff. But at the same time, the people that do get it, I think they really are drawn to it. You know what I mean? Like if they, they do, Oh, I see what it's like. It's a, it's a cool moment of that. Aha. I get, it. I think Rado, he's really good at one. He's played 5 billion games. And so that kind of helps, but he's really good at going, Oh, I see what they're doing here. And then he gets drawn in even more, but not everybody is going to get it. But at the end of the day, I'm not here to get a job. I'm here to do a job. And so, you know, not everybody's going to get your things right. Uh, that's a really cool, cool deal though. And so let's, uh, let's talk about that though. Let's talk about play testing. And when you're watching testers or you're getting feedback, what are you looking for, hoping that they do get that aha moment, hoping that they do kind of get these metaphors, they understand what you're doing thematically and how everything kind of fits together with the mechanisms? What, what are your notes or, or what do you like really zone in, you know, focus in on as far as playtesting and watching other people play your games, all that kind of thing? Well, there's, it's, you know, it's a very, very big topic with playtesting, but if we wanted to, you know, kind of gear it towards, you know, the what's going on here is sometimes, you know, there's conventional wisdom about, you know, should your first prototype, you know, should it have any artwork on it at all? Should it just be on index cards with, you know, chicken scratch writing? Um, well, that's going to challenge your play testers to have your imagination and see what you're doing, or they will just see it as very mechanistic and they might just be fighting with their handwriting the entire time. And it won't be very immersive. You'll just be able to see some of the gears turn at that point, unless, you sat around the couch and talked about the grand vision of this game before going into this, you know, very plain uh, play test, but you can um, help that. I think with just a little bit of clip art and things like that by going, I don't know, noun project or just whatever else and putting a little bit of theme on your original prototype. And if you have, um, you know, like meeples uh, in it, you know, that's going to help create the identity that this is a, a you know, a living thing. It's going to, it has desires and intentions going to do stuff versus, using a cube instead of a meeple um, like that. So as you use kind of the, the right parts for the job, it'll start to bring in some of that, that metaphor stuff. And again, like the, you know, put the boat in the blue hex, you know, it's going to make more sense than just having, you know, a hex with a, you know, I don't know, a little wave drawn on it and a cube on it. It's like, you say, this is a boat. Remember that it's like, well, if it looks like a boat and this looks like a river, then people are going to work with it a little bit more. And you'll see, I'm asking fewer questions. It'll be an easier teach and they might start getting into the theme. Um, and sometimes you hear people uh, making little sounds and, and personifying things that happen in the game. Uh, and you'll see that that's, that's engaging them in, in a certain way. Like if you're, you know, moving a vehicle and somebody starts, you know, making a motor sound as they push it with their finger across, you go, it's like, all right, you know, we're, we're bringing out that childlike fun thing where they're, they're creating um, part of the experience with that. So I wouldn't say, you know, go hire somebody and create, you know, crazy, beautiful artwork and spend tons of time on an early prototype, but get enough uh, stuff in there so people can see the, the metaphor that you're trying to go for. And if they start to leverage that to understand the game easier than they would if it were purely abstract, um, that's, that's kind of a big, big deal. And so stuff I might have on hand is I have like a little, I don't know, a tackle box that's full of cubes and parts like that. But I also have some kind of, I try to pick up some kind of fun meeples and things like that. Cause sometimes I'll inspire something like even in uh, early versions of what was a fistful of meeples, I sourced a bunch of meeples, with little cowboy hats on it. I just felt like if people had cowboy hats on the game, they would just get into it more than if it was just plain meeples. Um, and when I was doing Lions of Lydia, I felt like the coins were so important that they couldn't just be Monopoly money and say, hey, we'll have cool coins later uh, or even just cardboard tokens. I was like, these, these need to like feel like something. So I got poker chips and uh, I took the I found the picture of a Lydian lion coin, which is why it's named that and got sticker paper and put that on a bunch of poker chips. And so as soon as people started playtesting it, they were just grabbing these piles of big old money and, you know, dropping them and making sounds with it. And it just felt like when you get to play with the poker chips in this game, those lion coins, that's that cool moment where you've switched from the, the bartering economy into the other part. So I felt like it was an easy thing to do. Poker chips are easy. Sticker paper is easy. Clip art's easy. Put that together to try to see if that really engaged people into that, that half of the game. I felt like it, it, it did. So, so maybe just try sourcing the the right tools for the jobs or, or just enough just enough to engage the player's imagination uh, instead of burdening them with telling them that it's going to be awesome later and reminding them constantly that this thing isn't actually going to be the way it is here. It's going to be 
something else later on that's going to make more sense. I promise. <laughs> I promise this will be fun someday. Um, you know, bring bring the fun in, bring the metaphor in. Yeah, absolutely. That's great advice. All right, so I'm I'm loving your stories. I'm loving your anecdotes for your from your specific games, games that you've designed. Give me some more. Tell me about maybe Merchants Co. or some of the other other games you have on the market right now that maybe people have seen, maybe they've played. Tell me maybe some more anecdotes about how you put these games together so that the theme was integrated with the mechanisms and design. Give me some more stories. Sure, sure. So Merchants Co. is a, um, it was originally designed by uh, Carl Van Ostrin, who's kind of the mastermind behind the project. And I was a co-designer along with Drake Villarreal. And we, uh, the idea of it's a highly asymmetric, medium weight Euro game where each player plays uh, what was like the the shopkeeper and what would normally be a role playing type adventure. Instead of you being the brave warrior, you're instead the the innkeeper, right? In in the village, that sort of thing. So you kind of reverse the roles and then you try to work the inner workings of your given profession and then try to, you know, acquire coins to get rich while these adventurers come and go on their quests into your little town. And so uh, the idea was that each player would play some sort of a mini game that would be a metaphor for whatever they're doing. And uh, so we look at that and go, okay, so if there's going to be an alchemist shop where the adventurers are going to come and get um, some potions, well, what should we make this out of? What mechanic would be there? And of course, there's there's a bunch of kind of like little love letters to games uh, that we like in there. And one of them is like potion explosion or gizmos where it's like, okay, well, you know, if you're taking marbles, you know, they're kind of cool looking that come down like a decanter and you put them into little pots and they brew up to make these different potions. That feels kind of like being an alchemist more so than, I don't know, um, you know, t- taking recipe cards and, you know, deck building or something. It was like, I think playing with marbles is going to be pretty fun for an alchemist. Do you agree? Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's, let's roll with that metaphor and see what we can get out of it. And that's, that's what stuck with that one. And um, with, say, the innkeeper, we were thinking about, well, what, what can the innkeeper do? Well, he's got to have an inn and you got people come up. And we thought, OK, well, when do people stay in an inn? Well, it would be at night. And so what would be a metaphor for at night in this game? Well, this game has three rounds. And what if at the end of every round, after everything else is kind of said and done, the innkeeper gets to kind of open up shop and do their thing as this little auxiliary round? cool so maybe some of the adventurers come and stay in the end in between rounds okay well uh i'm thinking this game has marbles in it that's kind of fun all that i think this needs to have a fun little component so i was like what if we made little cardboard like dollhouse beds and you know had little freaking little beds that you put a little meeple and lay them on his back and stays overnight in between the rounds to score your points as the innkeeper and you're trying to make the right types of room accommodations and drinks to serve these adventurers and so the idea was like okay let's make the innkeepers board like a little dollhouse panorama kind of thing where you kind of look into it you see little rooms and you try to get the different rooms set up during the day so they come in at night and you got your drinks and the lighting all set and it's good cool and then we thought well what else happens in the end well there's the bar part and i suppose with all these you know rogues and warriors and maybe a bard comes in there and sings a lousy song. There's got to be some ruckus, right? And so we took the idea as like, well, what if you make the wrong accommodations for the meeples that are coming in there and they're angry? Well, they're probably not just going to go on Yelp and never come back. They're going to just like turn the place upside down. So we created this little like dust cloud with, you know, arms punching and legs kicking out of it and all that in the middle of the barroom floor. And that's the brawl. So if you mess up in the game, you end up having to put meeples into the brawl. And the more meeples you have in the brawl, you know, you kind of lose points for it. And so it's like, all right, so you're trying to get the guys in there, stay in the beds, get the drinks. If they're upset, they go into the brawl. And then you go, well, what do I do if there's a bunch of meeples in the brawl? It's like, well, we need a bouncer, (laughs) some way to kick them out. And so you can hire a staff uh, character to come in and take on a position, which is one of the core mechanics of the game is you can hire these staff to do different auxiliary tasks for your given shop. And one of them is the bouncer, which is allowed to kick somebody out of the brawl. And so then they then they leave your your establishment and it's a little bit more peaceful inside. So it kind of created this whole little, you know, this little thing that happens with the the innkeeper based on, again, sort of a thematic experience um, there. And similar with each of the other roles, we kind of looked at the the blacksmith is forging stuff and we thought it's like, okay, they're going to forge, you know, cool weapons out of dice and a dice forge type of thing. And um, we took the captain who's got a, uh, a spinner. I really wanted to bring a spinner back into games. Uh, I feel like they're one of the most hated components in games for a randomizer. And I was like, what if there's a nice spinner kind of like Red Gordorn's uh, Montana? And what if it was like the look like the the cursed uh, compass of the captain? You have to spin this crazy spinner and it's going to tell you where your ships can go. And and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So we kind of built the rest of that character around the idea that it would be spinner centric and it would determine what you're really able to do on a given turn. 
That's excellent. And I love the what if game. That's one thing I love doing in my own game designs is sitting down and thinking, okay, what if this was real? What if in your case, like what if I really was in an old West town, what would be going on? Would there be a saloon? Okay. And what about that? And, or in, in this versus COVID, it's like, okay, what if we had a blacksmith and how would that work? And what if this and that, but that's a really wonderful way to generate ideas. And not all the ideas are going to be good. Some of your what ifs are like, what if we don't? How about we don't? But that's totally fine because you're generating ideas. You're generating solutions to problems. You're inter- you know, generating interesting things for players to do and things that make sense because you're putting yourself in that scenario as if, what if this was real? What if this really was happening? We really were in this fantasy world or, or whatever. Like, how would it work? And then tying that into the mechanisms. I just love that. On the game I've been working on for forever, seems like you know, called Robomon. I've got this fishing mechanic because any game that's similar to a JRPG needs a fishing mechanic. And I was thinking through, like, how do you represent that in a board game? And it's like, okay, well, it's got to be with depth. And the the deeper you go, the more rare the the fish, or in my case, the, the robots are. But how do you represent that? So I created this little, very simple push-your-luck mechanism that uses dice of, uh, of decreasing size, right? So you start off with a D12, and then it's 10, 8, Six, four. And so you're pushing your luck and you're trying to go down further and further and further. And so, you know, basically it represents depth because that's what fishing is, you know, and, but it's, again, it's a very simple little thing, but it kind of makes sense as your, as your uh, lure goes down further, you find more interesting stuff. But again, just kind of coming up with what if this existed and then how would it work mechanically, I think is an excellent question to ask. And it's a great place to uh, it's a great thing to do whenever you're stuck. You know, whenever you're trying to figure out a, an answer to a, a problem, is like, well, what if this or what if that? And a lot of times you'll come up with a, a pretty interesting idea. Uh, anything else? Any other little stories or anything else you want to uh, talk about as, as far as this stuff goes? Um, I, I guess I could talk a little bit um, about the game Endless Winter. If, I don't know if you're familiar with it or how, how that works. Um, no, tell me about that one. Sure. So uh, kind of pick that one up. So Endless Winter is one that I'm the uh, developer on. So that's also... You know, a lot of the stuff I've been talking about so far is designing uh, the game from from just conception all the way through. And so sometimes as a developer, you come on and the game will already have a theme uh, that I have almost no say in. And uh, it might even have some artwork done. A lot of things are going to be done in certain mechanics. Uh, they're, they're pillars of the game. They cannot be changed. And that's the vision of the designer. And that should be respected. And, but there's a bunch of other stuff, loose ends, that you can kind of mess with. So you see the theme, the setting, and you try to work with with those things. And in the case of, say, Endless Winter, we look at, okay, this is about Paleo-Americans uh, trying to survive and eat and build their their traditions and you know create villages create even things you know kind of maybe even religions beliefs all this sort of stuff they're just creating a civilization um in a very you know difficult uh environment you know everything's real frosty so with some of that stuff we go like okay well the core game is going to have these basic actions which totally makes sense like you know you're going to go out and try to hunt a mammoth to have some food you're going to you know uh you know chisel away at something to make a cool artifact and all these other things. And uh, the publisher said, okay, well, we also want to include some expansion content and we'd like you to design the expansions for it. And so we start to open up and spitball ideas about what, what could also happen in some of these things. And uh, they said, okay, well, what if we, uh, one idea was to kind of add rivers into the, the terrain board. And so it's normally it's just big, you know, hex terrain kind of looks like uh, a mini Catan board where you're putting, um, villages and things out there to kind of do area control and get some points and resources out of it. So what if there's a river that kind of ran down it? And if there's a river, then there's going to be a little raft that goes down the river. And what could that do? And what if there is some cool landmarks like a volcano and some other stuff happening out on that board to create interest? And that, that almost designed itself. It was so easy just to think of all these cool little ideas that could happen on a, a mini board like that. And then they said, and we want the other expansion. We want something crazy. Just like think of something really weird that's going to catch people off guard. And I was like, okay. It's like, and they're like, you know, I don't know. Like the way you guys did a, a roll and write character in Merchant's Cove. I mean, that was just like, you know, out, out of left. And I was like, okay. So the thing is like, well, what if we did something weird with like dry erase boards and stuff like that? And it's like, all right. Well, immediately it's like, well, what would cavemen do with dry erase boards? Well, cave paintings. It's like, okay, so I'm thinking, it's like, so if we're going to be doing a roll and write thing um, where we're, you know, filling in cells, connecting dots, which is normally just a bunch of math on a grid, 
how can we make this feel like drawing something but not actually require skill because we don't want it to be pictionary or something like this where somebody actually has to you know have fine penmanship and so i was thinking i was like well what about dot to dots you know as a kid that's fun right you're just connecting all the dots and eventually it turns into some cool looking animal whatever else it's like so how can i mechanize a dot to dot thing on a dry erase board but still have it tie into effectively a, a euro game and so i really kind of thought about that i looked at different cave paintings and i put uh took a cave painting and say like a you know a bison or something and then i put little dots around all of its perimeter and all the key spots where i thought you could fill in and i started just kind of just drawing filling in the dots and seeing where can i make different cells out of this thing and divide it up in different ways and connecting dots uh connecting lines to those dots um and sectioning off little areas might feel like oh you completed something you know i completed the hoof of this thing um and so then i put like a little benefit in there it's like okay if you complete the hoof then you get this little added reward and if you complete these other spots it's good if you have a really long unbroken line around the perimeter of this thing um you get more points at the end of the game so i started just really leveraging ways to connect all these dots and pay different costs to do so and and work that into the economy of the game and uh, instead of introducing um new outputs let's say because it's economic game instead of going um and this is just a way to get more points it was kind of like well what if this was a way to hybridize and kind of take a back door into the existing systems of the game where normally you'd have to go to the hunting grounds to hunt and then you'd have to go over here to build an artifact well what if there's a way that you could paint your painting and you can unlock a little bit of hunting a little bit of artifact building kind of as a hybrid depending on how you draw and section this thing off at, in a way of your choice to kind of do these weird combo actions. And so that kind of became the theme of it. It's like, all right, this is a way to draw a cool looking animal with this auxiliary action and do combos that you just can't do with the game the way it's set up normally. And so it was like, all right, cool. And then we thought about, let's make this look cool. So we put on a little, like a little easel. We had some background drawings of the, the animal itself. And then the rule book, it says in the start of the game, uh, draw, basically you can trace the outline of say the mammoth's face on the front of your animal, but it suggests, you know, you know, give it googly eyes do something you know make it make it personal and that's unrelated to the game mechanics but when you're done you'll have drawn all the rest of the body in and it will look like um a completed cave painting so that cave painting expansions in, in effect you do get to physically draw on this cool stone slab looking thing and it will look like a fun animal that's at the end and it also feeds into the economy of the game uh, and doesn't distract from uh, the normal game and creates an opportunity to fuse uh, mechanisms together that were otherwise isolated in the core game. And so that, that was kind of the grand approach to that thing. And we knew we were going to have people's heads turning and going like, really, you're going to make me draw in Endless Winter? That doesn't make sense. And then when people start playtesting on TTS and stuff, they're like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. <laughs> and we, you know, kind of wipe some sweat off the brow going like, okay, cool. This, this crazy idea actually really works. And um, people warmed up to it right away. So that was, that was great. That's so cool. And I, I love the idea of subverting expectations and doing things that you wouldn't expect, especially in a Euro game. You wouldn't expect a roll and write thing. You wouldn't expect to have to draw. I mean, there's been a few games to come out that kind of have that going on. But for the most part, that is very unexpected. And then if you can pull it off, like I said, people really enjoy it. They really appreciate it. And so, again, going back to the what if game, it's like, well, what if we added this mechanism that normally shows up over here or this style of play or this you know component, whatever? What if we added it into this place right here and we did it this way? I, I think that's just a, a cool way to approach problems and, and approach game design in general. That, that's awesome. Uh, well, closing thoughts, Johnny, this has been excellent. What would you tell somebody who, who's maybe working on a game right now? Maybe it's a Euro, maybe it's something that's having, they're having a hard time injecting the theme or making the theme really come to life, come together. What would be your advice? Um, well, it, you know, you kind of said, you know, find something that you're comfortable and that, you know, and you're passionate about, because just like any game, you're gonna have to play it a lot and you don't want to get tired of it and worn out with it. So find something that you think is, is exciting to you and you think is exciting to other people. Um, I know some people, um, you know, they really want to make a, a dungeon crawler or something like that and think of characters and all that. And it's a very saturated theme or setting. And so it's, it's fine and good. It might be hard to make some of those stand out. And then you get on the flip side, you get people that just try to come up with the craziest themes out there. And I think that they lose a little bit of the metaphor sometimes when they do that, where I had a friend, he had this uh, prototype. I love this prototype. It was called like Ruby Hunters. It's just about pirates going to islands and digging up rubies that were buried. And I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Such good mechanics. I had so much fun with it. And then uh, a publisher approached him about it. And I want to say that they wanted to retheme it as 
teenage penguins doing parkour off of. Oh ah, yes, the uh, the well-known theme of penguins and parkour. <laughs> yes, classic genre there. <laughs> yeah, it was it was so bizarre. And I said, "How is that even going to work?" He's like, "I don't know." It's it, it, apparently they have some idea, but I just feel like nobody really has expectations for what that means and and why penguins, why teenage, why parkour, why you know. It's like in in with the mechanics that this game had, I don't, I really just didn't see how that would work. I don't, I don't know if that theme stuck or they changed or whatever else, but I remember just sitting there kind of sad at the play test when I heard that that was a possibility that that could happen. And when we're talking about the what ifs, you go like, all right, well, if that's a theme, well, how do you come in and do the what if sort of idea? What, what cool baggage does that bring on? And Honestly, I don't know. I, I guess you could look at a bunch of pe- penguin stuff and see if there's anything cool there. And you could look at a bunch of parkour stuff and see if you can fuse those together and make puns or something. But it's kind of like that Venn diagram of like people who love penguins and love parkour and love board games <laughs> that are strictly mechanical with a weird theme on them. All three of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, how do, how do you work with that? And I find that that's really difficult because um, it's, it's kind of undersaturated and it's not full of a lot of metaphors. And it seems uh, kind of strange right it just kind of catches you as like ooh, that's wacky but i don't know if ooh, that's wacky is exactly why people want to you know buy games sometimes you'll get something as simple as patchwork and you go oh it's basically abstract it's like yeah but you're making a patchwork quilt with buttons and it looks cool like there's a great metaphor right there and it's it's something fun to do with a you know couple's game around a fire whatever else it feels totally right and the setting makes sense you want to complete the patchwork quilt um so a simple theme like that might drive was otherwise a Tetrisy abstract into becoming a thematic, very cozy experience. And I think that's great. Or Lost Cities. Oh, it's just like a numbers on cards game. It's like, yeah, but as you lay down cards in Lost Cities, you get to see closer and closer to the cool thing that your expedition led out to. And it's, yes, it's very abstract in a lot of ways, but there's a little bit of theme there of just getting closer to the thing and seeing it up close. And that uh, touch the artwork where you actually do zoom in on the, the artifact. Um, I thought it was a really good touch. So maybe just looking at, you know, bringing a theme and what doors does it open up? How many cool what if questions that open up more doors and more doors uh, has, or does the theme close those doors and you just go, okay, here's a theme. I, I feel restricted by this theme. Now that's, that's probably not what you want. Um, and so, uh, you know, keep your possibility space open. If you use a saturated theme, you're, you're going to be able to, research and find all kinds of ways that that theme has been done and you'd be able to borrow a lot of stuff if you find a unusual theme it might be a real uphill battle and if you find something kind of in between where like say i don't think there's any games about ancient lydio and the conversion of coins (laughs) um, at the time but people are used to resource management they are used to worker placement building kingdoms and you know buying stuff with coins and games so they were used to all the stuff they just that particular arrangement is unique, you know, it's um, where it's Splendor is just the, the, the buying of stuff and making a discount engine. This, this one is maybe similar, but it has a transition in it. Right. And so that theme opened up the arc of the game in a different way than just, uh, you know, what one might argue is a little bit more one dimensional. Right. You always have to be careful of being different for different sake. Right? Are you being different? Are you coming up with an interesting theme that hasn't really been done before or not done very often because you have some really interesting ways to approach it and some cool mechanisms that all integrate? Or are you doing it just because nobody has done it before? Like, okay, there's certain things to be said about that and novelty and, and whatnot, but you got to be careful because, like you said, it, it might end up being for nobody or being a really hard thing to market because people are like, well, what what is this? I don't understand. So, yeah, you definitely have to, to be aware of that. Well, Johnny, this has been... Excellent, sir. Really uh, appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with so many games. I know you have in the works, and I'm excited to see what's coming from you here in the near and and further future. And uh, good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Yeah, oh, thanks so much. It's great, great being on. Real honor. It's a uh, you know longtime listener of the show and your books and everything else. So it's a uh, it's real special to be here. So I really appreciate it. Oh man, pleasure's all mine. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?